On this Sega Talk, we enter the sewer pipe and grab some coins as we run through 10 moments in Sega and Nintendo history from the early, and I mean early days, to the future. So let's go talk us some Sega. Woohoo! Segabits presents Sega Talk, a podcast talking all things with your hosts, George and Barry. Look, it's a giant talking egg. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the master here. So what? Hello, my name is Barry, and with me is Georgigi. Georgigi. George. Hello, hello, everyone. I'm just gonna be normal. I'm not gonna. Be, I'm not gonna do a Chris Pratt impression of this podcast. In this episode, I'm gonna talk like this the whole time to get you ready for Mario the movie. Perfect. Um, man, that would be insufferable. Two hours. Two hours. Uh, <laughs> so on this episode of Sega Talk, episode 101, we are not talking about. The Platinum Games title, Wonderful 101, because there is no Sega connection there, unfortunately. Mm. But what we will be talking about is Nintendo. So a fan favorite episode of ours is our Xbox episode. I think it was episode 80. I could be wrong. Mm. Um, and in that one, we specifically talked about the original Xbox, how Microsoft got into the console game, and Sega's role in that. And the reason was is we actually had some uh, internal documents that we were kind of debuting. So if you want to check that out, check it out. It's very cool. This one, this was a Patreon pick from a Patreon picker named Nicholas Schaefer. And he has memories that I will be reading in a moment. But George, why don't you tell the fine folks uh, what they get if they support us on Patreon? Your wildest dreams, they all come true. You go on Patreon, you go to that Patreon at, was it, dot com slash Segabits. Oh, fabulous Patreon page. It's got, you with a dollar, you get the audio early. Anything more gets you the video early. You pay us $20 and we get to talk about the game that you want us to talk about. So you'll be able to pick an episode like this and have your memories right in the beginning. Is that, is that a good enough plug? Um, I think so. <laughs> See, um, so I'm, the I'm so good at doing the plugs that you weren't even ready. I wasn't even paying attention, to yeah, be well, quite honest. Well, I think your mic just um, got blown. That's what what happened. <laughs> That's what I think. Okay, all right. Wow, there's a lot of them. There's a lot of them. Um, but yeah, so Nick Nicholas Schaefer. So this is what he had to say. He said. This is such an interesting one because Sega went from Nintendo's biggest rival to one of their top third-party supporters. Growing up, we couldn't afford a Genesis or an SNES, and it wasn't until a teenager with a part-time job and a Dreamcast on, was on the scene when I finally bought a Genesis. Two months later, a Game Boy and my love of both those companies began when I got a Dreamcast. I was uh, all things Sega, only to get home and find out that Sega was leaving the console market. So the hunt to decide what I should do, what I would do next. I remember looking up at the Xbox and GameCube and making a list of how many Sega games they had. Then in 2003, they announced that next year would be the year of Sonic in an issue of Nintendo Power, and I was hooked. I think some of Sega's creativity showed up in new IPs on Nintendo like Monkey Ball and Billy Hatcher, and today I feel like Nintendo is the only one of the big three that truly sees the value in Sega IP sometimes 
more than Sega does. Maybe that's because they're built on nostalgia, and maybe they just remember how it w- how it w- was those games that took 40% of the market in one console generation. I remember in an interview, Nolan Bushnell, creator of Atari, said that if it wasn't for Sega, Nintendo would have been the next Atari, but the competition they created spurred the industry to grow. They were the original console war, and I have nothing but respect for them. Wow. So, yeah. So let's let's dive into it. And there will be more memories. We will be reading them uh, at the end. But, you know, that's, that's what we got. So, the way we're doing this episode, instead of just focusing on the GameCube, when was, you know, like Sega's entry into the third party, we're actually going to be doing a little bit differently. We're going to be going through the 10 moments in Nintendo and Sega history. Sometimes Sega will play a part. Other times it's just looking at uh, a moment in history that was important to Nintendo. But um, if you you had listened to uh, episode 80, and I I got my wires crossed. Episode 80 was our history of Sega name and logo episode. Um, And you listen to this one, you're going to see some dates kind of align. You're going to in the back of your head, be thinking, oh, this is what Sega was doing at that time, and this is what Nintendo was doing. So, you know, listen to that episode. There's going to be a lot of times on this episode where I'm going to call back to other Sega Talk episodes. So, you know, this is kind of like the Avengers, you know, of of Sega Talks. Yeah, so people are like, oh, who's that guy? Oh, I haven't seen Black Panther? That's Black Panther. He's a Black Panther. (laughs) Yeah, he's pretty pretty cool. He's pretty cool. So, um, yeah. So, to kick things off, let's take a quick trip back to the origins of Nintendo with early Nintendo. Uh, We could go as far back as 1933 for Sega's origins, uh, before the name Sega even, or even service games existed. Nintendo's origins, however, go back even further. So, Nintendo was founded as Yamauchi Nintendo by Fusajiro Yamuchi. On September 23rd, 1889. That's super old. Yeah, that's company, super old. That's super old. Indiana like Jones wasn't even born then. 2G you know, he was Internet. born in 1899. Um, so the company was based in Kyoto, Japan, and produced and marketed Hanafuda. And Hanafuda is a type of playing card in Japan. So, like Sega, Nintendo began in gaming. However, Nintendo began with paper products, whereas Sega, of course, began with coin-op machines uh, decades later, you know, maybe, what, 40 years later at the, at the very least. So we have mm. a picture here of Nintendo cards. Um, this the? is a a very old advertisement. It's like a poster showing them off. Well, they have Napoleon, see... right? Like, that's pretty old. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, that's right? pretty outdated. <laughs> Right, like yeah. he was, he was contemporary, right? Like they're, oh, sh- he was like the the I don't know, like Zach Braff. He's like the last French hero. Right, right. Yeah. Kids love him, um, love but him. yeah, they, they're like tinier cards. It's, there's a special way to play it. Um, did it come to the West? I guess we'll find out. But Nintendo's playing cards were initially handmade, but as demand increased, the company switched to mass-produced cards and brought on more employees. And I thought this was really weird. Tell me if this is creepy. So in an odd Japanese tradition, 
the company founder did not have a son, so he legally adopted his son-in-law, and then his son-in-law took his wife's last name. Wait, what? So, isn't his wife's last name his last name? And he's his son? Right, so, so his like... son-in-law... Right, so his instead of his, his daughter taking on her husband's last name, he adopted his son-in-law, and his so son-in-law's he... last name became his last name. Isn't that... That is, that is kind of strange, right? It's so, like, you think it yeah, was like an so alpha new... move? I don't know, but it's apparently a tradition. So the new owner of Nintendo would carry the family name forward, even though he was not a blood relative. Yeah, it was a weirdo. Um, I think it's kind of like emasculating. Like it's kind of removing a bit of his masculinity. That would never happen here, you know, um, in the West. I feel like often it's it's the son-in-law who like the company owner is kind of afraid of. They're like, oh, man. He's going to take this over. My daughter is going to like take it over, but then he's going to take it over. So, yeah, um, creepy stuff. Um, Nintendo's history is not starting well. It's it's it sounds very backwoods. Uh. <laughs> Maybe it's like I mean, like I it says, know. Japanese tradition and Japanese like it they were is. pretty strange. They were like isolated. They had all these weird traditions, and we just were like, why? Okay. You scared me. Like they got super mad, and then they would they would like stab themselves. It's like, what are you doing? All right, we all it's had not... tantrums. George, <laughs> okay. don't say something that I don't want all to get right. canceled. All right, got you. <laughs> um, so in 1933, Nintendo established a joint venture with another company and renamed the company Yamauchi Nintendo and Company. And in 1947, they established a distribution company to distribute their cards and other types of cards produced by Nintendo. So they did do playing cards, if you looked at that poster, um, like Western playing cards. In 1956, Nintendo engaged in talks with the United States playing card companies to expand their business to the West. And when Nintendo representatives came over to America, they were shocked to learn that the largest playing card company in the U.S. worked out of just like a tiny office. And it kind of made them realize that playing cards were really a kind of a limited business model abroad. Like, imagine that, like, you're in Japan, you got this huge office, and you're like, we are the kings of playing cards. You go to America, and it's like, you know, like the suburbs of Chicago, some tiny office, like five guys, <laughs> you know, and they're like, yeah. oh, China prints them. Um, yeah, and uh, it's like that <laughs> a lot, though. Like, the arcades here, like, the arcade business here in america have always been way more small compared to japan oh right? yeah so i just i don't know i don't know why they do it bigger over there just the way they do it i guess just how they do it um and so to kind of i mean they weren't leaving the, the trading card market or the playing card market so to combat this in 1959 nintendo made a deal with the walt disney company to produce dis cards with disney characters on them so they had a licensing deal um and it was such a success that in 1962 nintendo went public and they listed the company on the osaka stock exchange and you can see some of these disney cards here they're pretty cute um what's your favorite card from uh, here? i mean anything with bambi i mean but it's like always the one with the butterfly on his butt Have you noticed that they like doubled the art like get some new yeah. art what's up with that <laughs> but yeah my favorite one is the um 
the evil queen from Snow White as the Joker card for Tokyo Disneyland. Oh, yeah. I that think that's is, pretty cool. That is really cool. Yeah. 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 I wonder how rare these Snow are. White is, is anime, right? She, yeah, she's um, pretty anime. Oh, they are pretty rare. I saw them going for a couple hundred dollars on eBay. I mean, it's Nintendo. So the it's like, set? oh, that plus Disney? It's going to sell for a lot. The set or a few cards? I think the set. It was a set. Um, you see it in the upper left-hand corner there. It was that set um, selling for a couple hundred. So pretty neat. Yeah. Um, so now let's look at this timeline here. So we are in 1962. Nintendo is still producing playing cards. Does it surprise you that at this point they're still focused on playing cards? Well, meanwhile, Sega is already well-established, 1960. Um, with slot machines, photo booths, and early arcade machines, like who who's the more connected to video games at this well, point? Well, Sega, because I feel like Nintendo had to take a direction and they didn't take it er- that early, and it doesn't make them worse or anything. It's almost like no. I uh, also uh, Sega was also criticized until they got bought out by a Japanese company for not investing in actually making games. You know what I mean? Like they would make the machines right. and then they would uh, outsource most of the product, the software production. So there's always somebody that comes in through your company and changes it all. But yeah, uh, if it's working, keep on going. I would. That's what I assume Nintendo was doing at this point. Yeah, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. What do you think um, about this? That Sega was more. I, advanced? I mean, if we're just playing the like fanboy discussion like here i would say yeah well sure nintendo's been around longer but sega's been in the gaming industry far longer than nintendo i mean as we'll soon learn you know sega's been in arcades for nearly 100 years um and if we're going with like that 1930s early early origins of like the one of the founders of of sega with his own company bromberg i think it was Mm. um with coin op, so like th- right there, you know, y- you're from 1933 to 2022 now. Sega still has some sort of arcade presence, whereas Nintendo still has not entered arcades, and they have since left. So I if don't we're know. just looking at arcades, like Sega's got it. Are we going to talk about their arcade history? Because I don't want to talk about. Yep. it. Okay. No. Very briefly, actually, All that's right. coming up next. So let's get to it. Um, But here's the interesting part. So here's when they finally left playing cards. So in 1963, Nintendo dropped the playing cards name from their company and they were simply known as Nintendo. So if we're talking about like the birth of Nintendo, that's that. Uh, Throughout the 60s, the company experimented with a lot of weird stuff. So they had a taxi company, a love hotel chain, and, and a food company, which was actually very successful. Um, and then in 1966, and this is where we start to get kind of the Nintendo of today, Nintendo began to produce toys, including extending arms, which they called the ultra hand, uh, light, light beam gains. So like very early, uh, uh, you know, um, laser tag sort of situation, but with lights and then programmable drum machines. And we have a picture here of the ultra hand. And if you recognize that, that's appeared in games much later i think um uh what's what's the one with um warioware i think warioware has a game this game in it oh. i could be wrong 
I will say though that this looks like something you would buy out of like a the back of a comic book magazine, you know, when they had the little like X-ray glasses. This is yeah, yeah. It's Disney, like it's like a buy. box. It's like a cart. If you're listening on audio, it's like one of those cartoon boxing gloves that come out, but it's a little grabber, and then you're supposed to grab a ball and put it in a cup. And oh. yeah, it's. I mean that that's early early it's a game though you know it's a toy it's a game so starting to get into kind of the Nintendo feel there I mean you could argue Rob the robot is kind of like this he's a grab he grabs things and moves them like this is just you know analog I will, I will <laughs> analog say that um, something I noticed is that there's no like no logo on their box at least that I could read so their branding right. isn't as strong as it's been obviously in the last. 40 years 50 years it's pretty weak here absolutely yeah 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 i've seen that throughout a lot of these it's just the nintendo brand did not really show up on any of these maybe you'd see a little copyright in the corner but not the logo um yeah so uh nintendo's first involvement in video games actually didn't occur until 1972 and this was in an alliance with magnavox to develop and produce, and I, I don't even know if I can say this word. This isn't a Japanese word. It's just a really weird word. It's optoelectronic guns oh, yeah. for the Odyssey console. But instead of C's, and it's a K. Exactly. Yeah. And this led to Nintendo's foray into arcades. So if you've ever seen the Magnavox Odyssey, it comes with a gun, and Nintendo helped them produce that and that's drawing from their light beam gun toys so right there you can see a through line from playing cards toys light beam guns mm. video game accessories so that's kind of that was nintendo's in to the video game market and that's why i think the zapper is such an important thing because that's really pulling from some of sega, sega i want to say sega nintendo's earliest um gaming you know creations so mm. if anything zapper is like the most pure nintendo uh, thing really um let's get on to number two so number two nintendo in arcades so nintendo entered the arcade business by producing a laser clay shooting system which used their light gun technology and these games uh were set up primarily in abandoned bowling alleys and nice. gained some success which allowed Nintendo to develop more light gun machines. However, the venture had to be shut down because it was too expensive to operate. Um, but it did lead to Nintendo kind of putting their foot into the arcade market. So they were finally established. So this is an interesting video. You'd hmm. think it was like video, but it's like a, a slideshow. So we can turn the audio off. I don't want us to get dinged. Um hmm. But it's it's just a collection. You could even skip through because the pictures don't really start proper until 30 seconds in. But these are photos of this technology. And what it appears to be is like a projected screen of a mountaintop. And then people with these, these guns the aiming at the screen. Mm-hmm. You see that? Yeah. And there's yeah. like some super 70s looking Japanese people. It's great. 
but you can also kind of see what was the remnants of a bowling alley there, which is kind of yeah. funny. Um, but those guns, they're just, they look like straight up wooden rifles, nothing too gamey about them. No. Um, no Nintendo logo. It just says laser clay. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to see, I don't see any, no. And then there's a toy too, where you would like shoot a lion in the forehead. Um, and if you skip ahead to about two minutes, 40 seconds, you'll see footage of someone playing the game. And very interestingly, the animation looks like the duck hunt duck. The mm, Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Look at that. That's crazy. And even the, the, the square that appears when you shoot, that, that works there. So right there, duck hunt is in the clay, the clay shooting game in that is the probably strongest earliest like Nintendo presence in games. If you want to play the purest Nintendo game ever, play Duck Hunt. That's it. You know, and it's very interesting. And I mean, I'm not a big time Nintendo fan, so I've I've come across a lot of really cool revelations in in researching this and that's that's one of the things that I came across. Are you going to um, tell everyone at home that actually Nintendo copied Sega because they made that Duck Hunt game in the 60s or 70s? <laughs> and it's exactly, I didn't want, exactly I the didn't same game? I didn't bring that up. It is the same game. No, um, yeah, Sega had a electromechanical Duck Hunt game. Very different technology, but I mean, I... I I don't really think they actually ripped them off. I think no. it's just a funny. No, I, you know, I think I mean, duck hunting is a, right. a normal activity. It's like calling a, a game uh, waves or like swimming, and you're like, oh my god, or soccer. You or know, so- it's yeah. just a sport. Exactly. Um, so yeah, um, Nintendo also entered the home console market at around this time, as they acquired the rights to distribute the Magnavox Odyssey in Japan. And the first Nintendo video arcade game, EVR Race, saw release. Nintendo also partnered with Mitsubishi Electric and released the, um, I guess what we'd refer to as now as like a plug-and-play home console um, that featured, there were two versions, one had six and one had 15 games packed into them. And I, I do believe the Odyssey was like that too. Oh yeah. I could be wrong. But they, you know, those early games, it would have like Pong and then like alternate games that you could play. And so that was really kind of Nintendo's early start. But does it surprise you that Nintendo relied so heavily on partnerships at this time rather Uh, than really creating their own home console? Not really, just because they've always been kind of timid coming into it like a new, like, kind of like market they've always tested the waters they never jump in too super hard it's like even when they i don't know if pokemon the game came first or the card game or the or the anime but it's almost like i wouldn't be shocked that they made the game last to be honest with you the way that they, they seem to <laughs> right. work so i wouldn't right. i'm not i'm not that shocked that they're like well there's already this console that we could sell and see if we could get it some sales going and then if we do we'll start from the ground up ourselves yeah, and it's interesting because this is almost like Nintendo playing the role that Tonka played when the Master System came to America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But in that case, it was a toy truck company handling a Japanese video game machine. And in he- this case, it's a 
Japanese playing card company handling an American video game machine. Oh, yeah. Um, I believe. No, Magnavox was American. I don't know. Um, in any case, uh, we have a fun video here. Let's enjoy this. I it, really like this one. Is this the Donkey Kong one? Yeah, yeah. It's a Donkey Kong commercial. Let me lower it a little bit and restart it over. The arcade sensation. Donkey Kong, the arcade sensation. Wow. And now you can play it at home. That's Mario. <laughs> now you can play Donkey Kong. It is. Is it supposed to be? Yeah, it's supposed to be Mario. Wow. Uh, he looks like a mobster. You're not gonna stop me, you stupid ape. <laughs> That's great. Um, yeah. So, okay. so <laughs> that, um, that that was a commercial for Donkey Kong on home consoles. But in the early 80s, there was the emergence of what Nintendo is best known um, for in arcades, and that being Donkey Kong, which de- was designed by Shigeru Miyamoto. Who? And it I've was at this time. This I don't. Well, he's basically like Yu Suzuki, but not as good. Basically. Oh, got you. So, I get it. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, he's like their Yu Suzuki, but like they have to like build him up so he's appears better than Yu Suzuki, but he's not. Gotcha. Um, and it was at this time that Nintendo's video game division truly took off, as they had the release of Donkey Kong Junior, Sky Skipper, Mario Brothers, and Donkey Kong Three. And despite their success in arcades, Nintendo shifted to focus more on home consoles, with Nintendo of Japan. Ceasing manufacturing and releasing of arcade games in the fall of 1985 and withdrawing from JAMA, which is the Japanese Amusement Machinery Manufacturers Association, in 1989. Wow. And then in 1990, Nintendo of America announced it would no longer manufacture equipment for their machines, so like replacement parts or things like that. So um, now look at the, the date here. So you know, 89, 1990, do you think this was a smart business move for Nintendo, or do you think they could have been a bigger player in the arcade industry? I feel like they could have kept it going into the 90s. I know that there was, like, a lot of people thinking in Japan during this moment that I think in the late 80s, like, the it was already the slump of arcades going into, so I could see them thinking that the market was going to turn 100 percent but i feel like 3d games kind of brought it back in the mid 90s for a while so maybe they could have done a bigger push but overall obviously everything's gone to consoles right like after the dreamcast i feel showed that the gap between arcade and consoles is non-existent a lot of people just were happy enough to play at home right so overall they're you know they were right but uh barry i have a question for you um do Uh-oh. you do you think like when you see arcade history I've noticed this a lot like even the biggest arcade movie is that the King of Kong or whatever. Do you think that like <laughs> Nintendo gets a lot of credit for how little like games they actually output it in arcades and how many of them were yes. not as popular as they've been over time? Like Donkey Kong was big but not Pac-Man big, right? Right. Well, so Donkey Kong was big. It was huge. But I think you're right. It is referenced a lot and cited a lot. It's on like Donkey Kong. Oh, and Donkey Kong references in that bad movie Pixels and, you know, championship movies. And I think for normies, like casuals, they look at it and they're like, oh, Donkey Kong, Nintendo, 
Nintendo was a huge arcade presence. And it's like, yeah, for like a hot minute, you know, yeah. like for, for like maybe 10 years or less, but they pulled out real quick. And I know there are people who are like, yeah, well, you know, look at Sega now. They left the arcade business. Well, Sega left the the real estate business, essentially. They, they stopped managing buildings that held their arcade games. Um, one could argue that's a smart move in, in a recession or in, you know, a, a time where you don't want to be owning a lot of space. Um, now, you have to look, too, that Sega had from, you know... 1960 all the way up to the the 2020s or 2010s maybe a lot of success in arcades like nintendo pulling out now just imagine all the stuff that sega was doing in the mid 80s all the way through the 90s the 20s the i guess the 20s 2000s um imagine if nintendo had their equivalent of that but they don't so <laughs> we will never know but there was no like 3d games from nintendo there was and and they're really they like their gimmicks so it kind of surprises me because it's like didn't you guys wouldn't you guys love to do some crazy arcade gimmicks and like have it work with your consoles you know what i mean like yeah, one bring thing, your memory card one thing i did notice with nintendo is that they've always been timid to expand their teams like even right now on the switch there's so little games that come out compared to like other uh, like Microsoft has like a million studios now, right? They're going to be pumping out games in a couple years. Nintendo is mm-hmm. five years on the Switch. I'm surprised they don't have more Mario, Mario Odyssey type titles onto it. It's just like, I feel like they don't have the manpower to be like supporting console, making arcade games. Like they just never invest the way Sega did on art, like software. Like Sega was investing a lot of money in making the, they're arcade games, console games. Yeah. Yeah. So no, I, I get know. that. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. But, um, let's talk about console games, though. So mm-hmm. let's get to number three, the NES versus the Master System. And I have a Nintendo Entertainment System commercial here that we can check out from 1985. I'll press play. Looks uh Will you be the one to witness the birth of the incredible oh my God. <laughs> so, Terminator. One to play with Rob, the it's Rob. video robot, batteries not included. He helps you tackle even the toughest challenge. Wow. Will you be the this kid has a gun? Incredibly accurate Shoot him. And Shoot play Rob. games like Duck Hunt or action-packed Hogan's Alley and high-flying Kung Fu, each sold separately. I... Will you be the one to experience the Nintendo Entertainment System? Comes look at all with that Rob, plastic. Zapper, control deck, beautiful. Controllers, Gyromite, and Duck Jesus. Online. I can't look it, at... How that, much did this cost? That, a dollar? I don't know. Probably <laughs> like a, a lot. A hundred um, bucks. Well, no, I, I the original Famicom, which I don't think came with all that, was a hundred dollars in Japan. Okay. But in 1982, Nintendo developed a prototype system called the Advanced Video System with accessories that included controllers, a tape drive, a joystick, and a light gun. And this system... Um, was said to be used as a simple home computer, but it was never commercially released. And I think the Nintendo store in New York has it on display. I could be wrong. But yeah, so if you want to steal anything, steal that. Um, In 1983, Nintendo released the Family Computer Console in Japan, and this was their first attempt at a cartridge-based video game system. And more than half a million units were sold within two months. But, and there's a big but here, despite the success... A major flaw was found 
in the console's chip, which caused games to freeze, which led to a recall that cost the company approximately half a million U.S. dollars. So, <laughs> whoops. Um, this is a pretty major quality control issue. Would you say that Nintendo learned their lesson with this mistake in future consoles? Like, I was not an early adapter for Nintendo products. I think the first new console I ever bought was the Wii U. Mm. Um, wh- what was their, how was their, like, uh, success with, um, like, you know, like, were there Red Rings of Death equivalents for I, Nintendo systems? I can't think of anything, like, in the past, like Super Nintendo or anything like that. What I could, mm-hmm. the only thing that comes to mind is the Switch with the uh, joyks, joysticks that, like, drift. Oh, the drift, yeah. Yeah, like, that's a huge, and they don't fix it still. Like, they're literally releasing, like, oh, we have a, they did the light, right? The the one that you don't have Joy-Con, so if they do break, you can't send them to Nintendo. You have to physically ship your whole console to them. They didn't fix it on that. It's like, I don't understand. Like, usually they're pretty good about this and they'll finally admit their mistakes. Uh, and the, mm-hmm. th- the 3DS or DS had the hinge issue. Those are the two biggest issues I could think of them. Well, all you need to do is you just get a Tape. third-party oh. controller and then Tape. you're all good, right? Yes. And um, <laughs> I play I play most of my games on third-party in America, if you have the drift issue on your Joy-Cons, Nintendo actually fixes it for free because I think they're legally uh, have to do it. Um, so, yeah, send, don't be afraid to send them in. Don't be so. I've done it like six times already. So, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would say they probably learned their lesson from this because I mean those are those are issues for sure, but. Nothing that is like console breaking. I, I can't think of anything that was on the level of like the Red Ring of Death. Uh, I feel like Microsoft finally, finally got it with like the Xbox One, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> but man, yeah. And the PlayStation had its own issues. Um, but Nintendo, they redesigned the Famicom to become the Nintendo Entertainment System for launch in the United States. However, the U.S. debut was delayed because... Uh, There were talks with Atari, who Nintendo hoped to be the U.S. distributor, and these talks stalled, and then the video game crash hit. And in the aftermath aftermath of the crash, uh, dominance of the market shifted from America to Japan, with Nintendo's only other major competitor on the market being... Uh, Atari? Atari? No, Sega. Sega. Sorry. Yeah! Yeah, Our boys. The hometown team. So, um, well, there is a lot of Nintendo home console and handheld history to cover at this time. Uh, We're going to keep things simple. We're going to focus on the NES and how it compared then and now to the Master System. So um, you don't need to show these links. These are just for if you need to, like, scan the the libraries for each console. But let's say that it's the mid-'80s and your family won the lottery and you bought every single Master System game and every single NES game, as well as all the hardware and peripherals. Um, so put your fanboyism aside. All the stuff's at your at your hands in the 80s. Which console could you see yourself playing more with the library? Oh, man. Easy. The NES, actually. I actually think the mm-hmm. NES for an 8-bit system had some really, really good games. Um, some that, like, I think... 
helped usher in the 16-bit era. There was just something off about Master System games. And I and I think when we covered the Alex Kidd episode where they talked about how they couldn't even work at, on polishing controls and stuff because they had to go on to the next game because the Master System didn't have enough games. So they had to keep on pumping them out to put more things on the right. shelf. Because of right. the, because of Nintendo's scummy practices on trying to get uh, publishers to only publish on their platform, so right. it, it's hard to compete when you have Castlevania, you have Mega Man games, you have uh, even one of my favorite games, Gunsmoke. I think I talked about before. Um, it's kind of hard for me to go. Yeah, I'm gonna go play Master System. I, I like the Master System for uh, the second place. Right, there's not that much competition, but this was kind of a bad era for competition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, I love the design of the Master System. I think oh, it's yeah. a beautiful, like, designed console. Um, I really, I know some people shit on it, but I really like the concept of the games and how they present them because, you know, NES games, they, they all have very different cover art, different names. I mean, it, it, each game looks very unique, almost like a VHS tape. But with the Master System, it was almost like it was all one library. And it had very consistent cover art. It presented each game as though it's like, this is a racing game. This is a shooting game. This is a role-playing game. They were very clear with what the genre was. And when you read the um, manuals, they would often put you in the first person. So it would be like, you are Sonic the Hedgehog. And you are running through. And so it's like... I, I get what they were going for, and I, I think it actually was very effective in terms of just the whole presentation of the console and the software. But the problem is the software was limiting, like you said. There wasn't much mm-hmm. of it. And what we did get was either... It was like it ranged from great to forgettable. You know, oh, yeah. there was to, to some in-betweens. But when you were like, oh, what is what are the must-plays, must-play Master System games? There aren't that many, in my opinion. Um, most of them are better on arcade or Genesis platforms if they are multi-platform. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay, I would so, go with NES. Yeah, so when you said you like the Master System design, which model of the Master System are you talking about? There's, like, so many. Oh, well, there's the the one where it has, like, all the little, like, white lines and the red and black, like, unnecessary stuff on the on the front. Uh, you're I talking like about the, the long one? The log? The long one, yeah. Yes, the log, okay. And uh, I also thought it was interesting that they had card games and that they had built-in video games on the console. So, like, if you bought one, it had, like, sometimes it had Hang On or some other game built right into the console. I thought that was pretty cool. I will say the, if we're talking hardware issues, the contraption that they use for the NES to push, push it in and pop it down. Oh, yeah. That would wear out over time. Yeah, so sucked. there is that's another issue, um, but the master system just didn't have that. You pop in the cartridge or you put in the card, and I've never had issues with it. And I love that the card reader is built in. Mm. Um, there's no extra, you know, you're not going out and buying the card reader accessory. Genesis would have done that, yeah. but not the master system. Um, so now let's jump forward to 2022. It's reality. It's us right now. Um, and we've kind of answered a little bit of this, but how how do you view the kind of the legacy of the NES compared to the Master System? Uh, which one do you revisit more and what are kind of your pluses and negatives for the console as like retro collecting or retro experiences? 
so uh, I collect probably more for the Genesis than I would the Master System because I mean it's just way better. But I have played more Master System games in the last probably ten years than I have played NES games, and mostly because I got a the flash cart for the Genesis that also plays Master System games. So I just load them up on there whenever I want to play on my uh, console. So it makes them easier to access. Um, also, I don't have a Super Nintendo right now. and need to, I don't think Super Nintendo had an, a, a feature where you could play NES games, right? I don't think so, no. No, so, it, it yeah. had the Game Boy Player. Which was pretty cool, but yeah, no. Which was pretty cool, yeah. Yeah. So I play more Master System games, but I do still think that the uh, NES is better. And I do think Nintendo fanboys aren't saturating because like 90% of the games or even more than 90% were on NES. So it's kind of hard to be like, oh yeah, Master System is got him beat. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, I view the NES more favorably than the Master System now but to me the master system's more fun to revisit because i don't have as much history with it as i do the nes i mean i didn't own an nes until decades later but even then the master system i have is a very limited library and it wasn't until i got the uh the everdrive that can play the master system library on the genesis if you don't have the 32x connected that's when yeah. i've really been experiencing them so that's very cool and i love See, the thing is, is there's like the FM quality sound and things, but those aren't available to us in the West. So there are some really cool attachments for the Master System if you're in Japan, but not oh, America, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah. Um, let's move on to number four. So Sega games on the NES. This is a wild one. So um, let's look at this this ad here. Tengen. Mm. Tengen. Um, and there is a phone number. Should I call it? Yeah, let's, I think we need to call it. Just in case, like, All they right. answer. They're like, hey, it's Tengen. Uh, what game do you want? And we're like, uh, give me an Indiana right. Jones. We always... Rolling Thunder, this Shinobi, is... <laughs> Afterburner. <laughs> and this really weird so if... Pac-Man right here on the top. Look at, look at his smile, dude. All right, That's let me creepy. try this. 408. And this is I'm this is on the, the ad for Tengen. 408-473-9400. Hundred. Let me to be set. Get it on speaker here. Busy, busy signal. Mm, somebody else called. Before Sorry, us. gang. Somebody maybe, else. <laughs> yeah, maybe someone else is talking to them. Um, so this ad, if you look at it, it's very tiny, but it says Tengen's products are designed and manufactured in the USA by Tengen. They are not designed, manufactured, sponsored, or endorsed by Nintendo. And friend of the show, Chris Tang, actually worked for Tengen. He worked Ooh. on Gauntlet, uh, I want to say Gauntlet 4, right? That's the one? I think um, uh, this is just Gauntlet, but look how cool that cover is. It looks like a heavy metal album. Yeah, that's sweet. But we yeah. should have him back on and talk Tengen because he talks about how they were... Well, we'll get into it here. So... Um, believe it or not, there were Sega games released on the NES. Even crazier, these games were available at a time when the Genesis was sitting on the same store shelves. So why is this? Well, the company responsible for these ports was Tengen, a division of Atari, which handled third-party games. And I guess either 
legally, I don't know what the reasoning was, but they had to have a different name when they put the games on rival consoles. Mm. Very strange. But I, I guess Atari just did not want to appear that they were like leaving the home console market, maybe. Mm. Um, that makes sense. But do you remember a little earlier I was talking about that stalled negotiation over Atari distributing the NES? Yeah. Yeah. So the reason for that was that there was a falling out. There was some sort of controversy involving Donkey Kong appearing on Coleco, and maybe Atari had something to do with that. But since then, Atari and Nintendo really did not get along. And after the market crash, you can imagine that there was some animosity since basically here comes Nintendo now taking the place of Atari after this crash that really hurt them. And now Atari was creating games for a console that they themselves almost distributed. So, you know, not too happy about that. And then worse still, Nintendo of America had incredibly strict licensing policies for third parties, which did not help their working relationship. So basically, uh, Nintendo limited companies to releasing only five games a year and mandated that Nintendo handled the cartridge manufacturing and required a two-year exclusivity deal. Which Can you imagine like trying to be successful on the NES, but you're making five games a year? Yeah, and not (laughs) not only that, like um, having to sign a two-year contract, I know that they ended up being the market leader, but like... Imagine trying to be a different console manufacturer. You kind of like like it's a monopoly basically. You're like, "Oh, for 2 years you just make Nintendo games." So, even if Sega tried to give you a sweet deal to make games on the Master System, you're No, I guess we're good. Yeah, it's like, I think like each game then had to be exclusive to the nin- Nintendo console. So, it's almost like you're making games for the market leader and but you're limited to five so i wonder if like they would pump out those five games and then like make the master system games that weren't ports or maybe they found ways around like making games that were similar but not the same and maybe that explains why we sometimes would get games that do seem very similar but they're not the same game i'm not sure but did you uh, tension uh, they did you ever mm-hmm. see? The, I don't know if this is part of the notes, but did you see what Konami did? They like literally just opened up different game company names and released mm-hmm. it under yeah. So there, there's that they could do that. <laughs> they could, and I have to wonder if this is. I mean, Tengen I, is obviously under Atari, but they weren't called Atari. No. So, but then again, Atari didn't attempt to make additional games, so I don't think that was what they were trying here. Um, but they didn't care. So Tengen. What they were secretly doing was researching ways to bypass Nintendo's lockout chips so that they could manufacture unlicensed games themselves and not be limited to the five-game-a-year deal. Um, And Chris Tang, he told me they were producing, they were making the game cartridges in the parking lot. They had a machine set up. Wow. Um, Like they had a a trailer or something filled with these machines making... (laughs) <laughs> Nintendo cartridges in the parking lot. Um, and then there were, of course, there were there were so many lawsuits at this time. But Tengen, they did manage to manufacture several games in unlicensed cartridges. And these unlicensed, and I say unlicensed in the sense that they are not licensed by Nintendo. The games themselves 
were licensed by their respective companies. So these did include Sega ports that included Afterburner, Alien Syndrome, Shinobi, and Fantasy Zone. So uh, as a Sega fan, do you like to see Atari sticking it to Nintendo, even if they inevitably lost the lawsuit? Um, I think it's interesting because EA did it to Sega too with the their cartridge. Uh, I mm. think Nintendo had so many stupid rules, like, like even the rule with the five games a year. Do you think Nintendo didn't publish more than five games a year? Like, oh, they the, for sure made more than five. Yeah. So, and, and they get to put their Nintendo logo on everything. So that helps their brand name. I feel like that five game of year rule is literally handicapping third parties from making their own name for themselves. Because if you're Konami and you can only do five, let's say you do 15 games. So now you make these games under other publishers. So now the Konami name isn't on all of them. So you don't have a unified brand. Isn't that crazy? Right. And I... I have to imagine it was maybe fear of another company overtaking Nintendo in terms of output. So almost like you go and you're like, oh, it's a Nintendo machine. It plays Konami games, you know, like, yeah, uh, there's yeah, more, no. there's more like there's a weird sense of pride there, I think. And I don't think that Sega really ever felt that way. Like there were some developers that made a shit ton of games on the Genesis and no one was like. Oh no, they made more games than Sonic Team. <laughs> you know, it wasn't yeah. a big deal. No. I mean, end of the day, it's the library. The library has more games. And um, uh, Tension about they they hurt Sega's brand and all that. Um I don't think anybody that I've ever met owned Tension games. I don't know if you knew mm-hmm. anyone that owned these games. And so I don't think they were that popular. I could be wrong. I don't know how many units they yeah. sold. Yeah. Right, because, I mean, these games are going out at a time when Sega themselves are making Genesis games. And so you can imagine these, like, not-so-great unlicensed, well, licensed Sega games on unlicensed Nintendo cartridges. I I don't think anyone's looking at Afterburner and going, oh, man, I'm not picking up Afterburner on Genesis because Afterburner on Nintendo sucked, you know? Yeah. um, yeah, I, I did see Alien Syndrome is here too, and I didn't list that one, but I have to wonder was that unreleased? It's possible. I think it. I think it was released. I think I've seen it on a, a ROM compilation. Okay, so yeah, there were four. It was Alien Syndrome, Afterburner, Shinobi, and Fantasy Zone. I think that's it for Sega. Then, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, this Indiana right. Jones game was that like really like licensed from Lucas Arts? Uh, yeah, I think Lucasfilm or, or Paramount licensed that out. That's so, crazy. All right. Yeah. Um, let's move on to number five, SNES versus the Genesis. Let's, let's watch this video first. Ooh, theater. Oh, that guy's cool. This kind of power. Yeah. This kind of challenge. This kind of flying, crashing feeling. When you decide to get Imagine playing Sim City. Oh my God, it's Ant-Man. Of Super Nintendo. No one else yeah. Did you catch that? Paul Rudd's yeah. in this trailer. No That's sick. Wow, he was so young. He looks exactly now the I know. same. With power, super power. Wow. It he kinda... looks like ten years younger today. 
It reminds me of, do you remember the the office where Michael Scott is like, I was on a kid's show and he brings the tape to work and he wants them to watch it. And they all go, oh, that's the weatherman. Look, that's the weatherman. And he's like, no, I brought this to watch me. <laughs> I feel like Nintendo has this ad and now people are like, oh, it's Paul Rudd. And people are like, damn, no, you guys got to advertise the it's advertised the SNES. Um, what do you think about the so, uh, yeah, commercial itself? I think it's... I mean, it's very Sega. It's a very Sega kind of feeling commercial with, like, kids and, like, smoke and it's dark out and they're playing games. Yeah, it looks um, like uh, the like the coolest scene in your dream ever. Like, a, 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 sli- a older guy, in this one, a model, basically. Paul Rudd, right? Mm-hmm. Pl- Interesting plays, dreams you pl- have, George. Of course. I always have Paul Rudd dreams. That's the weird... That's why Ant-Man's my favorite superhero. Yeah. You didn't know that? He's my favorite <laughs> superhero. You didn't know that? I didn't I know feel that, like but... I feel like we have to cancel this podcast if you didn't know that. And I always talk about Ant-Man all the time. Anyway, sorry. But, like, you know, they're playing up the whole cool guy that plays video games angle that Sega used to play up a lot in the Genesis era. Mm-hmm. And that's why it reminds me of Sega. They got a pretty cool guy, too. Yeah. Um, Of course, the most popular story in retro gaming history is the battle between the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. And this story, it's been told in books, documentaries, Mm. a potential like movie or miniseries that's yet to come out. Mm. Um, So it goes without saying that this has been covered a lot. And we would love to cover it, but not for this podcast. I was going to like make notes on it, and I'm like, this is a story in and of itself. So I think the console wars, the SNES versus Genesis, will be a show in and of itself. Um, so rather than discussing the historic moment where the Genesis overtook Nintendo's console for several years, which I just covered there by mentioning it, uh, I want to talk about it thoughts on the hardware and game library itself. So how would you compare the upgrade from the NES to the SNES. Well, first of all, when you put the game in and you press play, power, it worked. That was awesome, right? So that's <laughs> yeah, the, top the loader. first yeah, that's the first big upgrade. The second uh was the quality of sound that you got mm. on 16 bit compared to uh the old NES, like even going back now, it's a little hard to hear some of the soundtrack you're like, "All right, some of these notes are a little uh hard for the ears and um the game quality improved massively like they had nintendo had all these like weird little tricks where they would miss around and have this like fake 3d uh i forgot Mm -hmm. what it was called Mm -hmm. fx chip or whatever mode seven yeah Yeah. mode seven (laughs) i don't know what it was called but whatever it was called it was pretty cool to see especially like at home it was very like arcade like at home if that makes any sense i know that's what Sega marketed at the time, but I think Nintendo did a pretty good job having their own kind of console version of it. Yeah, no, I agree there. And it it seems like, I don't know, like, yeah, they, it, it's a huge step up. I feel like the Master System just technically looks better than NES games, but NES games are just better games in general, better library, better quality. But here we're going, we're like jumping over the Master System quality. Some would argue jumping over the Genesis in some areas, areas in quality. Mm. Um, so yeah, it. I think it was a huge jump. 
I personally, you know, I'm I'm still a Genesis fanboy at heart, so I can't say that it beat the Genesis <laughs> in terms of just like quality for me. I love the the Genesis sound chip. I love the I just love the feel of a Genesis game. I prefer it, but I will not lie and say the SNES is like bad by comparison. It's just different. It's a different flavor. Um, but let's talk about those strengths, though. So the SNES, would you say the SNES has better sound than the Genesis? That's really dependent on the game. Like or different. Some, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, like it's hard to listen to Streets of Rage and go, oh, yeah, this is trash. This is Nintendo's. Oh my god! All the soundtracks sound way better than this. Almost impossible, in my opinion. Or even the Sonic soundtrack still blows me away. Sometimes the, uh, you know, just the way it sounds. There's good composition. I think Sega was also making really, 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 really good soundtracks at this time frame. Um, I do like Nintendo games, and I do think that that sounds good, but. In my opinion, I don't know. I, I just something about Sega's sound team that I really, really like more. I think that's one of Sega's strongest suits in video games. Like, right. even if a game is bad, you know that's going to have a slapping soundtrack. You know it. So it's that, yeah, it's kind of like you could hand an acoustic guitar to one of the world's greatest guitarists, and then you could hand like a really nice electric guitar hooked up to a beautiful sound system to like an okay musician Mm -hmm. and between the two the guy with the simple guitar is going to sound better just because he's better at playing it and i feel like uh and this isn't a knock on nintendo i think just like a lot of third-party snes games did not put the effort in or did not really you know see the potential that the snes had that i think first party games did Um, oh yeah how about accessories? You know, people don't really talk about SNES accessories. There was like, I guess, a light gun, right? Yeah, there was. And... It was like a bazooka. Yeah, yeah but I, I feel like the I feel like the Genesis beats out the SNES when it comes to accessories. It's well, just there's they're legendary. And I'm not just talking about like Siskel and Ebert in their little plastic rings punching, but I'm talking about like there was a great arcade stick. I loved the six button controller. I loved. Um, you know, uh, I mean, people give the 32X and Sega CD crap, but I like them, especially the Sega CD. I like the games they offer. Um, so, I don't know, just I... in terms, not talking like monetary value, like it's very easy to sit here and go, oh, yeah, well, the SNES didn't have the 32X and that thing cost $150. But like just, you know, like... I don't know. There weren't really any add-ons outside of. I think the best add-on was the Game Boy Player, the I was Super say, Game Boy. Yeah, I was going to say yeah. the Game Boy Player is pretty slick, but that's all I could think of. Maybe they had the whole like uh, Game Boy printer, whatever thing that you could print pictures out of your Super Nintendo. Oh, probably. Right. I don't know if it, that's yeah. how it worked. Um, but yeah. to me, um, I have to agree. Nintendo Sega did it, even if it's like. They had a bunch of duds, you know, like they were like, oh, Activator. They were kind of going crazy on adding, making add-ons. Maybe right. it was too much. But, I mean, it's hard to argue that they had some of the most interesting add-ons that made the console, you know, stand out in my opinion. Absolutely. And, I mean, I've had these discussions in the past where people would say, oh, 
you know, I, I would say, oh, I picked up a 32X and this is when it was affordable. I got it for like $20, $30. And I was like, I got a 32X. I got like five or 10 really great 32X games. And they go, yeah, but it was a, a disappointment for Sega and it hurt the Genesis and it cost $150. And I'm like, no, I'm talking about now. I got it for 20 bucks and I got 10 really solid games for it. So in my eyes, I like it. Like, I don't need to bring the history, the baggage of the history with it. You know, I feel like... Uh- too often that happens when we talk about like playing games now. Mm. Um, I don't know, just a little thing. But I, I would ask if we have a preferred console between the two. But I know the answer. It's Genesis. Let's not uh, let's not beat around the bush. Uh, Come on, George, don't disappoint me. The Super Nintendo is really cool, but I will have to go with the suit. Depends on the genre of games, though, because like. Super Nintendo had way better JRPGs, so if you like JRPGs, it's kind of hard to go, yeah, you go buy your Sega Genesis, you could play, buy Jerpings. Fantasy Star 4, and maybe another game somewhere in there. Um, right. They also had like, so they had like a certain style of game. I think this is like one of the first generations where if you actually look at the exclusives, you see like a big divide between the genres. Like Sega had more fast arcade games. Um so, like, it depends on the genres you like, I would say. This is, like, one of the rare... Because now if you buy an Xbox One and a PS4, outside of Sony games, you basically get all the same games. Right. Like, I, I would say if you're sitting down for the night and you're going to play an SNES, you're going to be playing one or two games. Not because the library is small, but just because the games take so much time to play. Like, there's a lot of meat to the bone. Whereas, um, you sit down and you play a Genesis, you're going to be popping in, like, five or six games because... They go so fast, and and there's so many exciting ones. You're like, oh, let's play Outrun. All right, cool. Let's pop in Space Harry. Oh, let's play a few levels of Sonic. Like, you're not going to go like, oh, we spent all night playing, you know, <laughs> Outrun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that just doesn't happen. Um, but yeah, both quality consoles. I, I honestly, going through this whole episode, I don't think you're going to hear us like bashing anything too much. You know, we're not that level of fanboy, but. I, I I lean Genesis, but SNES quality console for sure. Uh, let's move on to number six, Sega on the GameCube. And so the Nintendo GameCube, this was Nintendo's successor to the N- Nintendo 64. And today the GameCube is well-beloved by many fans, but it is considered to be one of Nintendo's least successful consoles due in large part to poor management decisions, weak third-party support, and worldwide sales that lagged behind the Xbox and the PlayStation 2. This was really... I mean, I know Sega was hurting at this time. They discontinued the Dreamcast, but Nintendo was equally hurting. I think they were seeing that no longer was it like a fun toy machine, but it was like you had to have the graphics, you had to have internet connectivity, you had to have a, a major company behind you like Microsoft or Sony... Um, and following the demise of the Dreamcast, Sega put its focus on all three of the console rivals and GameCube support was actually announced by Sega in May of 2001. And the pipeline of games made it clear that the console would be Sonic Team's focus and the home to family-friendly titles. So, of course, we had, and I'm holding them here, Super Monkey Ball 1 and 2. Um, we also had uh, popular original console titles that debuted from Sega, um, like those, as well as ports 
to see and sequels such as Fantasy Star Online with additional episodes as well as a card-based PSO episode 3 which is fitting that PSO would turn to a card-based combat game because it's on a Nintendo console which had Origins as a playing card company. Did you ever play Fantasy Star Online episode 3 Card Revolution? A little a little bit. I wasn't a yeah. big fan because, like, I expected an actual episode three, like uh, online three, and I was like, "Oh!" And then it was like, "Oh, it's a card game." Oh, Why? right. Yeah, I've been always meaning to pick that one up. I just don't own it. I don't own any of the PSO titles. On, you think it's uh, um, oh, you don't GameCube. know the 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 GameCube one? You could actually play two players offline. I know, I That's know. Cool. Aaron, Aaron Weber actually told me about that. He he likes playing that. Um, yeah, it's pretty but, cool. It is pretty cool. I got to pick that one up. Um, other titles included Sonic Teams, Billy Hatcher, and the Giant Egg. Look at oh, that. The legendary. That game up here. the legendary. The legendary. As well as a port of Beach Spikers. That's oh, actually yeah, a cover. very good game. Yeah, but the cover's know, terrible. Right? <laughs> it's like stupid. Um, <laughs> and a uh, one and done IP, which. I just learned about, as I was making these notes, called Amazing Island. Have you heard about this one? No. Amazing Island, it's based off an idea that Yuzo Koshiro had, and he did the music for it. Um, And what it is, it's a central hub of an island, and off on all the sides of the village are mini-games. And you have a monster, kind of like a Pokemon monster, and you go through all these mini-games, and at the end you have a party on the island. And it sounds epic, but it's actually a two-hour-long game. Very short. Oh, my God. The cover is so terrible. Yeah, it's terrible. But it's a cheap game. It's like $30, $30 right now. Um, so if you're into new Sega IPs that never went anywhere um, and you like Yuzo Koshiro, it's worth checking out. I'm going to pick it up. I think we should do a Sega talk on it because it's a game no one talks about. So we should. Um Sonic, of course, also saw several titles on the GameCube, but none of them were truly exclusive as they were either ports of Dreamcast titles or multi-platform releases. There was, however, the one true exclusive, which was the Sonic Gems collection, um, which included ports of Sonic R, Sonic CD, and Sonic the Fighters, and I'm realizing I don't have the manual to it inside my copy, and that's really bothering me now. Um, so, uh, Sega's support of the GameCube was short-lived, as, like many other third-party companies, they began to withdraw by 2003, but still it wasn't until 2006 that Sega really fully abandoned the platform with sporadically released titles. Um was there a Astro Boy game on the GameCube, or am I thinking of something else they did? No, I think you're right. I, there was an Astro Boy game by Sonic Team. Yeah, I don't think I own that one. Hmm. Um, but there was better. also this, Puyo Pop Fever. Oh, yeah, yeah, when it was called Puyo Pop. Yeah. I'm so, glad that that's not yeah. a thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, so when the Dreamcast died, did you jump ship to the GameCube? Um, I had a GameCube because mostly because when I was growing up, my younger brothers got it with Double Dash when they did the whole promotion where you got like two controllers and Double Dash for literally like a hundred bucks. And that should tell you that Nintendo was desperate to get people to uh, buy their console. 
So, because uh, they usually don't do packages like that when they're doing well. Like, you can never go and buy a 3DS. I mean, it was pretty rare to buy a 3DS with a, with a game packed in. Or a Switch with ec- an extra controller and an, and an extra game, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, that's when I got it. And I, I got I did enjoy the console. I thought they had some cool exclusives that's kind of some state exclusive. Like... I really liked uh, the remake of Resident Evil, the original, because that was one of my favorite games on PlayStation. Um, Resident Evil 4 was pretty uh, slick when it came out. Then, you know, it was later ported. I thought Fantasy Star Episode 1 and 2 having the offline mode was really, really cool. But uh, it wasn't as cool support as, like, uh, the Xbox got. I was always jealous because it was so expensive to buy an Xbox compared to a GameCube. So, like, mm-hmm. the barrier of entry was way higher. But, yeah. What about you? Um, yeah, I never owned a GameCube. I actually the I owned the Wii, which has a GameCube inside of it. So, mm. um, all these GameCube games that I own here, which this is the complete library of GameCube titles I own. Every single one is a Sega game. I don't own anything that isn't from Sega for the GameCube. Um and I only ever played it on my Wii. So yeah, that was that was for me. And I actually, that's the one thing I really love about Nintendo products, um, at least up to the Wii U, is the backwards compatibility. Oh, Obviously, yeah. the the Switch is not going to be playing Wii U titles, but they ported a lot of them. And I have a very strong feeling that the next Nintendo console will play Switch cartridges. Oh, I yeah. just I can't imagine them not making it backwards compatible. And also not being portable. I think this. I think that is the future of Nintendo, to be quite honest. But we'll we'll talk more future in a moment. Um, uh, what are your thoughts on Sega's library of games for the GameCube? Could it be stronger? Is it? Oh, it could definitely be stronger. Like we just saw that that Beach Spiker game, which it's not a bad game, but like it wasn't turning heads. Um, Billy yeah. Billy Hatcher and the Giant Egg flopped. Um, outside of like their Sonic the Adventure titles, which to be honest with you, they should have just done Sonic Adventure three because they were so popular on the GameCube that having a third brand new title would have probably broke even more sales records than Sonic Heroes did. I think that one was really coming oh, yeah. off the hype of Sonic Adventure two, and uh, so yeah um outside of that it was pretty i mean it was pretty good considering all things but uh if you like sonic team then it was probably the best way to way to enjoy their games what do you right, think right i i feel like the gamecube is really a uh, like the jumping on point for a lot of sonic fans and that's mm-hmm. great but if you were a dreamcast fan dreamcast owner a long time sonic fan gamecube is kind of a disappointment for just because it was like oh uh, a kind of lesser port of Sonic Adventure, Oof. a decent Oof. port of Sonic Adventure 2, um, and then Heroes, which I never was a huge fan of. I guess the GameCube one's the best version, but even then, like, the best version of an okay game. So, I guess the the best quality of it is the, um, the compilations. I think Sonic Mega Collection's a pretty solid, just, like, collection of ROMs. Um, and I think Sonic Gems Collection is a very cool uh, trilogy of titles. I just wish it had uh, Knuckles Chaotix on it. But And I know with Sonic Origins out now, there are people going, oh, this was the best one, Mega Collection. It, 
it's it's a it's a ROM collection. There's nothing special about this. You should be pointing to Sonic Jam if you want to talk like super special Sonic compilations. So with that in mind, I, I think it's a little disappointing. I think it should have been like Knights 2, Sonic Adventure 3, a true Fantasy Star Online Episode 3. Like, if you're just going to do sequels, do sequels that really turn heads. I just think Billy Hatcher... I, honestly, like, Monkey Ball was the best thing that they did. Cause, and that's that through to today, we still have Monkey Ball titles. So That's true. You know, I agree yeah. with that. Um, you might be asking yourself, hey, why aren't we talking about the Game Boy Advance? Well, heard guess it. what? Guess what, guys? I think that's going to be another future episode, too, because there are so many cool Sega Game Boy Advance titles and ports and just oddities that we could go on all day about it. So I, I, I think, again, stay tuned. Um, but let's talk about number seven. So number seven, the Triforce Arcade Board. Uh, Nintendo, they were out of the arcade market for quite some time by this point. So the idea of them collaborating with Sega on an arcade board may sound crazy to the console fans, but to those in the arcade business, Sega and Nintendo really didn't have any rivalry. In fact, if Nintendo wanted to venture back into arcades, they would have to rely on another company to help them. So, of course, enter the Triforce and know that is not the title of an upcoming Zelda and Matrix crossover, though I, I could see that being a really cool concept for, like, a movie. Enter the Triforce. Oh, yeah. um, have you heard about the Triforce? Of course, yeah. We did the episode of F-Zero GX, which used this beautiful board right here. I think it's one of the few games that used it. Yeah, and this is what you do when you talk about the Triforce. You do the little triangle in the air that's a Illuminati um, the triforce sure. you mentioned it was an arcade board it was developed in a joint venture between sega nintendo and namco and it's based on the nintendo gamecube console to reduce costs and allow for arcade ports of home console games and vice versa and because nintendo was not in the arcade business they actually licensed their properties to sega and nintendo which is very rare of them to do yeah. Um, Sega launched the system with Virtua Striker 2002 in the autumn of 2002. And interestingly, the Triforce uses GameCube hardware and it has different media boards. And one of them, well, Namco used ROM cards. One of them was Sega's proprietary GD-ROM format, which was used by Sega for their um, Triforce games, as well as their Dreamcast games and their Naomi arcade board games so in effect you had dreamcast data discs running on gamecube hardware so that's that's kind of cool i don't know i I think that's a fun little it's a weird merger of the two i mean because the gd roms just it's not a dreamcast disc it's just a a storage format that Uh, sega used so i i know know. we're this is about the triforce but like nintendo is still licensing i think it's a license right their IPs to other companies to make arcade games because there's that one arcade right. game of Luigi, Luigi's Mansion. I think it's uh, mm-hmm. kind of newer. Um, I, I played that one this weekend actually for the first time. So I'm not that. I mean, I'm surprised that they still make arcade titles because I felt like this is the first time they did it in a long time, right? 
Yes, you'd be right. And that was Capcom. Luigi's Mansion Arcade was handled by Capcom. But yeah, they just they have no interest in returning to arcades. So yeah, they they will be licensing them out. Um, And that brings us to the software. So there were a couple of Donkey Kong games released by Namco, which are like, you know, more rhythm games. It's not like your classic Donkey Kong. Oh, is that Um, the one you banged the drums? As well as a... I think so. I think that's the one. Um, And Namco, I think, has the Taiko drumming game. So that kind of makes sense. Um, There were a couple of Mario Kart games released by Namco. And even an unreleased Star Fox arcade game. And it wasn't until Platinum Games came along that we finally saw Nintendo license, in a sense, you know, Star Fox to them. Or at least bring on a third party. Um, Sega, meanwhile, they released F-Zero AX, which had a home console port called GX, and we covered that on a previous podcast, as you mentioned, and as well as some Japanese-only titles that included a baseball game and a card-based tower defense game, as well as three Virtua Striker games. So, uh, would you call the Triforce arcade board a success, or do you think they could have done more with the library of games? Well... Yeah, they could have done more. Like, Nintendo could have pitched in. I feel like a lot of these people were half out. Like, Nintendo was also... uh, Sega also had that other board with Microsoft. So, they had their own other businesses they were doing. Nintendo didn't put original software on it that, like, linked with their GameCube games to make people go Mm go out and play arcade games. Um, Namco was obviously doing their own tech and stuff in the back, and there were more advanced boards that... Really didn't... I mean, did Namco have that big support for the GameCube? I can't even think outside of the Nintendo Congo Bongo games. Yeah, not so much. And I think what we're getting at here is that this is autumn 2002. And by 2003, a lot of third-party publishers were pulling support from the GameCube. So it just was poor timing. Like, I think... Nintendo was hoping that there would be a couple more years on this and that we'd be seeing like Virtua Striker games ported over and these Donkey Kong games ported over, but it just didn't happen. Um, so yeah, it, I mean, I know we had the uh, Xbox board, which was, what was that? The Chihiro? Yeah, board? Chihiro. Um, which ran on Xbox hardware. I think that was more successful than this just because I can point to Chihiro games that saw xbox ports and they were a success whereas here the only one i can really think of is f-zero gx and even that game like was this like truly a success did it sell well i don't know i think it did Um, a million and nintendo's like that's not good enough for us which is like okay (laughs) cool right right but you know it's a rare case too of you being able to bring your um, memory card to the arcade featuring your save file for the game. So there was a little bit of coolness going on there, but just not enough for, um, you know, just not enough. Um, But hey, something big's coming. Number eight. Uh Uh-oh. Mario and Sonic has been announced. So let's watch the announcement trailer and react. Gamers react. A world? 1988. All right. Oh god, the music. It's like a Capcom fighting game, right? Jesus, this is too epic. Capcom versus SNK. 
Millennium Fight 2000. Oh my god, it Competing is. Competing for the first time in the, the way they same step in. arena. And the voice is At the, the greatest um, trailer music guy. On Earth. Or the, the trailer narrator guy. Wow, 2008. Are we really going to pretend that Mario could outrun Sonic? Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games. Coming holiday 2007. Okay, first of all, am I the only one that thinks that the Olympics are overrated? I mean, I guess some people would say that. Like, come on, sh oh, you, could throw a, you could throw a stick really far. Oh, so cool. Who cares? I like some of them. Okay, some of the events are cool, but like, let's be honest, some of the events are also kind of lame too. You're gonna get canceled, George. You need to stop. Uh, why? There's no now the plus... Japanese, the Japanese, and the Olympics are gonna uh, come after you. I don't care. Let them. Screw well, the Olympics. okay. So they nowadays, suck. nowadays the Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games titles have become pretty stale. The allure of seeing the two once rivals working together to compete. In the Olympic Games has kind of worn off. Um, yeah. But let's take a moment. Let's go back to 2007 when that concept was first revealed. So Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games was thought to be an April Fool's joke. It is. As the game was revealed in late March. However, soon after the announcement, Sega stated that the game was official and that both Sega and Nintendo were working on the project. And Shigeru Miyamoto, that guy again, I don't He's, he's I known for he uses, something. Mm, he made something out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A couple games. Um, they confirmed that he was supervising the project. Why him? So the game was released... I don't know. The game was released on both the Wii and Nintendo DS platforms. It was developed by Sega Sports Design R&D Department, which, to my memory, has members of Jet Set uh, Smilebit mm. and UGA. I could be wrong, but I think that's what... They kind of were the amalgamation of. Um, and a proper Mario and Sonic Sega talk will be on the horizon. So I'm not going to get into the behind-the-scenes development. Um, but let's stick to our reactions about learning about this crossover. So, George, how did you react when you first learned about Mario and Sonic at the Olympic Games? And did you think it was fake? No, because it just makes so much sense, you know? Like, they've been third-party for so long. And I think at this point... Sonic was in Melee, I think, like the GameCube games. So it wasn't like it was that strange. I'm I, I, I might be wrong. No, it was right. They they were on the GameCube game, right? Sonic was, or was it the game, or the or the Wii one? It was Brawl, right? That I he was know. in. And when did Brawl come out? I thought it it came out before this. He was playable in Brawl. Yeah, and that came out when. 2008 so okay so it was around the same time so i, I i'm wrong about mm -hmm. that so i don't know i just makes sense you know you have two iconic people that used to be rivals in consoles that rivalry isn't there anymore because sega doesn't have a console you literally have the biggest fans of sonic on nintendo platforms at this time it just kind of makes sense to just cross them over and just rake in the money who wants to play Olympic games? Like, I don't think they sell that well when you have like real Olympic games. So having this twist of Mario and Sonic, I think elevated the sales of Olympic 
the license of the Olympic Games. I think Sega was really... I think this... I'm not sure because I remember seeing old sales, but I think this might have been the best-selling Sonic game in, like, the history of Sonic because they were together. Yeah. It so sold I, insanely well. And, I mean, since then, they've had six titles over, I think, like, every Nintendo platform from the mm-hmm. Wii onward. Um, well, but, what is your you know, opinion like, what's on your, this? Like, when do you, how do you well, react? I, I don't remember how I reacted. I just remember knowing that I didn't own a Wii and it didn't look all that exciting. Like, I wanted them in their, like, game worlds. I wanted, like, a storyline yeah. of Mario appearing in Green Hill Zone or Sonic going to the Mushroom Kingdom and us getting, like, character interactions. And so, to, like, move into the next question, like, my overall take on the franchise is I think it's gotten a little stale. I think the fact that Nintendo doesn't really have motion controls anymore outside of the limited things you can do with the um, Switch the Switch controllers, it just it, it seems like it's now time to move into a non-Olympics title. Um, I do think they went the right direction in the last Olympics game that came out that had that like pixelated mode where you oh, could yeah. play... The story? As like the NES. Yeah, it was like the NES and Genesis sprites, which was yeah. kind of weird because it's like 8-bit and 16-bit characters sharing a screen together. I had an um, issue with that too. It should have been Super Nintendo sprites, but whatever. Right, but it was still cool. Yeah. Um, I think it was a missed opportunity though to um, not, because it was in Japan for the Olympics, not to do a thing where you include like All-Stars characters and Smash characters. So it's like, you know, you, you might get Donkey Kong, and you might get Kirby, and you might get, like, I don't know, Beat, and Oolala, and Amigo. Like, you don't need to go all out, but maybe include, like, guest characters from other franchises, from the companies. And I, I was honestly kind of surprised they didn't play up that Japan is their hometown and, like, have, like, a map screen, you know, with, like, the Nintendo headquarters and the Sega headquarters, but... I think I as know. as fans, that's something we're always going to be disappointed in. I think we talked last time, we briefly talked about that Sonic Team Racing game from Sumo and how like it didn't even dig into fandoms at all. And I think we're lucky to have other areas in gaming and comics and movies that actually are going all in on fandoms. So I hope in the future that's something that the Mario and Sonic titles actually look more into. Like leaning yeah, into the fans here. more, so yeah, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it sounds like we're disappointed with Mario and Sonic, and I, I guess it's just it's kind of like each one comes out and we're like, I guess it's the last one. They're done after this, and then they do another one. You're like, oh okay. Well, they made a few improvements. To be quite honest, I thought London Party Mode was a lot of fun in the Mario and Sonic 2012 London games, where it's like there was a story mode. And I think there was like trivia, like Sonic and Mario trivia interspersed. So there, that was kind of fun. But like it always comes close, but not fully like the kind of game like Mario Party, Mario and Sonic Party. Why not you do that? Like that sounds better <laughs> already. Yeah, And this is like these I think it's this, like Nintendo having we, like these weird outlines for their own games where it's like mario like i think it was that uh the rabbits game they did the srpg mario couldn't be Mm -hmm. the leader you had to have like a vacuum character they had to make for the game to be the leader 
And Mario couldn't technically jump, but they use a jump feature, but it's not, it's like a hop. I don't know what they did, but it's just stupid rules that they make. It's like, I'm 100% sure they're like, we can't have a Sonic and Mario Party game because we already have Mario Party. Why would we have two games? So I don't know. They're weird. That's a good point. Um, Well, we've got something fun coming up. So number nine. Sonic's uh, Wii U exclusives. <laughs> all right, podcast over. Uh, I think this yeah, is it. right. So, in May of 2013, it was announced that Nintendo had exclusive rights to Sonic the Hedgehog. Seconds after this announcement, the universe folded in on itself, and life oh, as yes. we know it ceased to continue. Do you remember that when we all like we didn't die? We just like like we were never there anymore. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do remember. That was weird. That was weird. That was weird. And then we came back. Um, no, of course I'm kidding. But that initial headline was definitely an attention grabber and caused many to speculate that Nintendo had bought Sega or that Sega had sold the rights to Sonic to Nintendo. But of course, none of this was true. The actual deal was that Sega would be releasing three exclusive titles to the Wii U and Nintendo 3DS. And during this time, Nintendo hardware would be the only home for new Sega, new Sonic games. And I don't think that was ever officially announced, but it we later learned that was actually part of the deal too. Um, so remember at this time, the only other Sonic titles releasing were mobile ports of Sonic the Hedgehog 1 and 2, which we actually named as our favorite games of 2013. So if that nice. tells you how kind of weak... Then, 2013 was for sega you know nothing nothing against the taxman ports of sonic one or two but man um so the first of these titles was announced to be sonic lost world which was followed by another mario and sonic title called mario and sonic at the sochi 2014 olympic winter games and the third game was unannounced at the time and it was later revealed (laughs) to be sonic boom rise of lyric and if you listen to our Rise of Lyric episode, you would learn um, that this exclusivity deal was not the best thing to happen to Sonic Boom at that time of development. And that's a great episode. I think you should go back, listen to it, because we unearth a lot of really cool behind-the-scenes tidbits on that game. But let's let's visit Segabits.com. I don't know if you oh, want to yes. bring it up or not. It's not a big deal. but I, I already had it up, but yeah. This is our article. So Sonic Lost World and Mario and Sonic 2014 announced Wii U and 3DS exclusives. And you can see how the news was rolling out. I was a little like I did these updates. Um, Yeah. So I talked about how there was this worldwide partnership in the Sonic franchise. Uh, And then I updated that the Olympic game was announced. I updated again with the websites. And then there was a Wall Street Journal blurb. And this is what they said. Sega of America... And Sega Europe today announced details of an exclusive partnership with Nintendo of America and Nintendo of Europe for the Sonic the Hedgehog franchise. The new agreement will make Nintendo consoles the number one destination for Sonic gaming over the next three titles, with more details of the individual games being revealed in the coming weeks. And the comments, man, oh man, there's <laughs> 27 replies. That's not um, good. <laughs> That's yeah, not let's good look usually. at some... Uh, it's finally happened. Sonic's become a Nintendo exclusive. That's what Adam Duffield said. He was He's wrong right. That. No, forever. Oh, forever. Um, 
Sonic Colors and Sonic Lost Rings were Nintendo exclusive. I think this is separate from the next-gen Sonics. I mean, yeah, that's from John. He was right, but yeah. I, I don't think Sega was allowed to release anything until they completed this contract. contract. I don't think so, because there were no other console receiving Sonic titles, and I think a lot of people were complaining about how the Sonic... One and two mobile ports never even got digital releases to like Xbox Live Arcade and PSN. And I think the reason was later given that they had this partnership with Nintendo. And if that was the case, they'd have to release those to, I guess, WiiWare or whatever they had for Wii U, the, the Nintendo eShop. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I was going to say, what do you think about like that? kind of nintendo in their mind was like this is the future of sonic games for the next three games and or at least the next three main games it kind of made it seem but they released a bunch of side games like sonic boom wasn't the leading game uh lost world kind of felt more like a side game where they experimented more with the money nintendo gave them to try to do something different with sonic um and then like uh the Sonic and Mario Olympic games were probably going to happen anyway without this deal going anyway. Right. Like it Sonic Lost World was really the only title in this list that like was a true exclusive that could have gone elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, rise of lyric could have, but I think we dodged a bullet. I I think even if that game was multi-platform and released to the cons, the platforms that they intended it to be, it would still have problems. Um, you replied here in the comments. You said, sad that we won't see a true next generation Sonic title for at least three years unless the next Mario and Sonic title counts towards this, which it did. So what was the next game after Sonic Lost World? I'm trying to remember. Was it was it From really Sonic forces? Team? Yeah. Uh, Sonic Lost. Uh, well, Sonic Team, right? So It was Sonic Forces, right? I think so, and it, dude, it's it was so long, and everyone was like, "Oh, Sonic Forces will fix everything because they'll have they have like a hundred years to make it, right?" But because that was like four years later, yeah, yeah, that was crazy. Yep, you're right. Yeah, uh, uh, well, they why do they list them with Sonic Boom and Sonic other games, but they never really do anything like Puyo Puyo Champions? Really, really did you though? <laughs> and like Sonic Origins, really Sonic Team, did you really develop Sonic Origins, the uh ports of the game? Come on. No. No. Um So, do do you think in the long run this exclusivity deal was a benefit to anybody? Uh no, because the I don't <laughs> no. think anyone went out and bought a Wii U for Sonic Lost World or Sonic Boom. Um so it wasn't good for Nintendo and I think the Olympic game was going to happen. They didn't have to do this. So it was a benefit for Sega. Uh, I think at the time, Nintendo were desperate to get games on there. So this is what they had to do. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you think this deal caused Sega to realize that Sonic should never be an exclusive to a single platform? Because remember, after this, we never really ever saw like a Sonic Colors or a Sonic Lost World where it was locked to like the Wii or the Wii U. I think so. I think they showed that uh it's just a dumb idea. Like it, they had one game that had a bunch of development issues. 
Uh, they had mm. a, they had their game Lost World that really went under the radar. I don't really hear anyone talk about Lost World, and you know, it's like it's, it's sometimes it's just like it came out. Okay, that's it. That's all I hear people talk about that game. So I, I think it was bad for them overall, for sure. Unless it has Mario in it, probably not a good idea to make it exclusive. Right. Right. And I mean, I, I think Lost World's fine, but I think Sonic deserves more than fine. Yeah. Know? Yeah. A, but that's what but, I'm saying, though. Like, it's not an exciting game like Sonic Generations was. Right. Or even Sonic Frontiers. Like, that's, I mean, yeah. exciting people in some ways. Like, the, is it the little drip drips that they're doing. I'm really interested to see how Frontiers plays on the Switch. Um, that's a terrible. Be- that's going to be something. <laughs> yeah, like, um, yeah, I'm good. Well, let's talk about the future. <laughs> let's talk about the future. So number 10, the final number here, is Sega and Nintendo's future. So here we are. Oh, it's no. 2022. Sonic the Hedgehog is a worldwide success in the movie theaters, while Mario is soon to make his return to theatrical films. Thank um, God. It's entirely, it's entirely likely that down the line we might see Mario and Sonic competing in the box office like imagine that you look up on the marquee and it's like sonic 3 and mario 2 you know or something like that i'm waiting for the uh multiverse when they finally open it up and they cross over yeah oh look at this portal (laughs) yeah that would be fun um as for video games sega and nintendo seem to have a healthy relationship with the nintendo switch though it appears that platform-exclusive titles are no longer a a focus for Sega as the Sega Ages series has come to an end and any future title really appears to be multi-platform. Still, though, Nintendo Switch Online has the Sega Genesis titles available to play, making Nintendo's once-rival now a key part of their digital membership experience. So... We talked a little bit about Frontiers there. We can talk a little more about it. But where where do you see Sega and Nintendo as companies in, let's say, five years? I see Nintendo making games for the Sega Dreamcast 2 that's coming out. <laughs> okay. No, in reality, Yay. in reality, yeah. um, I think it's going to be kind of the, the partnership they have today. Um, maybe a few, if they could get away with it. Hopefully, they drop the Olympic aspect of their mario and sonic games and they come up with a new idea i think that's something Mm. that would really get people talking about the games because i think having olympic events is what's holding it back i think people are like okay cool shot put yeah i want to play shot put but with mario right it's like it gets old after a while (laughs) instead of having like right games that pull from both their histories you know um that would be more interesting for fans in my opinion i hope that's the future in five years for their relationship but outside of that i think just doing ports is good enough i hope they reconsider putting old yakuza games on the switch i think it would be cool to have yakuza zero ported over and kind of expand the audience um i think bayonetta got a totally new audience on the switch when they she became exclusive and i think there's a lot of wimps on the nintendo switch that do not understand how it's like to be a real man like kazuma kirio <laughs> and i think they need right. a lesson yeah you i agree with you there um i'd say 5 years out i can see sega still doing what they're doing right now i think sonic as a brand will 
become much more prominent with the movies. I could see Sega inking a deal with um, maybe like a theme park company for a Sonic Park or a Sonic Ride or a Sonic World. Um, Yeah, for sure. uh, Nintendo has already done that. They opened their Mario theme park at Universal. So I could see Sega doing a similar deal. Maybe not with Disney. Maybe with Universal. I mean, there's who's to say? Um, As for, you know, like I, I could see Nintendo with their Switch follow-up being maybe 4K, but I don't really know. I I never really feel like Nintendo's always like, oh, we need to be 4K and, and, you know, have Digital Foundry, like, you know, freak out over over our hardware. Yeah, I think if they release a new one, it would be kind of like a PC upgrade where, like, all your old titles will work, but faster and clearer with better graphics uh running in 1080p i think that's all they really need in my opinion to like perfect the switch uh maybe make it run on better battery because that thing dies really quickly but besides Mm -hmm. that it it does what it does i think i think people hate on it a lot i'm surprised at some of the stuff it could run like we used to play the 3ds my dudes like five years ago and be like wow we're playing uh this this game on the go and now you're like, oh, I'm literally playing The Witcher 3 from PC, but on my Switch. And yes, downgraded graphics, but you're playing it on the go. It's That's crazy to me. Wild. Yeah. Insane. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I, I don't see either company. I don't see Nintendo buying Sega. I mean, knock no. on wood. I don't see that happening. Hopefully I not. see them, though, collaborating more. I see maybe more ports. Like maybe something like Sega Ages in the future, but multi-platform. Um, I would agree yeah, with that. But I, I, I see nothing but but positive, happy things. Um, I don't know. I, I'm feeling optimistic about the future of Nintendo and the future of Sega and the future of the companies working together. That's me. But what does our Patreon audience think So if you support us on Patreon at any level, we will read your memories at the end of the show. And we've got a handful here. So uh, before I read them, I will tell Daniel Andres, he sent a audio file kind of last minute. Um, Thank you for sending that along. It's a little long for this show, but what I will do is I will post that up on Patreon and it'll appear in the podcast feed so people can give it a listen. Um, but just so y'all know, Daniel has some thoughts to share. So you can hear those full audio thoughts there. I don't want to, like, chop it up and then have him, like, talk for 30 seconds about, I don't know, Mario's hat or something. Um, so we have Ben Hayward here. He says, what a rival rivalry turned cooperation. I can't say that the playgrounds of my youth had the kind of fierce Sega versus Nintendo rivalry that history now tells us existed. But even people got still, killed. You were usually, yeah, people. I I died. Um, My but best even friend still, died. <laughs> you were usually either a Sega kid or a Nintendo kid, and even within the Sega fans here in Australia, you were either a Master System kid or a Mega Drive kid. Both systems had big followings here, even wow. after the Mega Drive launched. It's so interesting to know now with the benefit of proper documentation of the history that these kinds of playground divisions reflected a much bigger and perhaps much more bitter corporate rivalry. 
Today though, with all that being in the past, it's nice to be able to play a little bit of Mario now and then without feeling like I'm betraying the blue blur. Love that blue blur. Um, Hams said, I was a Sega kid back in the day, starting with the Master System. There was a rivalry between Sega and Nintendo, and I defended Sega and its games when Damn I right. could, but I didn't, right. it didn't stop me from enjoying games on Nintendo's systems oh, at friends' of places. Course. Yeah, we call of that course. cheating. Uh, yeah, cheating. it's a secret. It's something we do in the dark. We don't tell I know anyone. I did that, too. And later on in my own home as well. My favorite Nintendo games are the Zelda games. Ocarina of Time was truly something special still to this day. Sega is my true love. Blue heart. Cute. Um, Tyler, <laughs> Tyler Olu says, It's undeniable that the Nintendo and Sega rivalry brought the best out of each other. While both produced wildly different games, there was a creative spark that shared that I've never seen since Sega exited the console business. While video games have always existed as a business, these two giants really made me realize that in art form games can be. Sega and Nintendo pushed each other to be their best, and it's a dynamic I will always miss. Yes, and we will miss you, but we will see you on the next episode of Sega Talk. And I guess it's me, because George did two in a row, I'm doing two in a row. So the next episode, dropping in two weeks, will be Ooh. Sonic and Sega All-Stars Racing. Or I should say, Sonic and Sega All-Stars Racing. Wait, wait, wait. You get two Sonic yeah. episodes. Or, or, well, I guess this is kind of a Sonic episode. That's too easy, dude. Too easy. Hey, it's the it's the Patreon pick. I gotta, right. I gotta do what Joaquin Branch tells me to do. So that's going to be happening. And you're one to complain. We're going to have a trilogy of Sonic titles coming up, actually. So all right, <laughs> stay all tuned. Right. I guess we'll talk more stay about Sonic. Tune. It's all about racing, too. It is. It's all about running. So without further ado, thank you for listening. Support us on Patreon. Go play a Nintendo console and give your local plumbers union your love and support. Bye. Bye.